Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hashtag Clocked In with me, your host, Jordan Edwards. I'm thrilled to have you tune in as we dive into the dynamic world of productivity, success, and stories of incredible individuals who've mastered the art of getting things done. Whether you're commuting, hitting the gym, or just relaxing at home, this podcast is the go-to source for inspiration and actionable tips to level up your productivity game. I'm on a mission to unravel the secrets of those who seem to effortlessly manage their time and achieve their goals. So if you're ready to clock in and unlock your full potential, you're in the right place. We've got a lineup of amazing guests, industry experts, and thought leaders who will share their insights and strategies to help us crush your to-do list and make the most out of every moment. Get ready to get inspired, motivated, and equipped with the tools you need to supercharge your productivity. This is Hashtag Clocked In with Jordan Edwards. Let's dive in. What's up? It's Clocked In with Jordan Edwards here. Hey, what's going on, everyone? I have a very special guest here. Joseph William Foster. He's the founder of Reebok, the global shoe band, and he just released a new book, Shoemaker. Hey, Joe, how are we doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Jordan. Yes, thank you indeed. Nice to speak to you. Yeah, Joe, we're excited to have you on the Clocked In podcast. So let's just start. How, where were you born? Where'd you grow up? How'd you get into shoes? Okay, well, I was born in Bolton, that's in England, in the UK, and uh, I was born in 1935, which is quite a long time ago, as you can imagine, and uh, by 1939, of course, we were in World War II, so for the first six years, well, for six years, when I was four to ten, my life was during war years, and everything was in blackout, uh, no lights on, so it was a fun upbringing, really. I didn't know any different, and you do, that's what you expect, you know, it's... <laughs> It, it was strange when I was 10 and the lights came on again. So that was it. So my early upbringing was sort of during the war years. Um, but when we start talking about the, the Foster, J.W. Foster, the J.W. Foster brand really started off with my grandfather. And that was way, way back to 1895. And in 1895, as a youngster, 15 years old, that's all, he made himself a pair of running shoes with spikes in the front. Uh, that was quite novel because as a member of the uh, local athletics uh, club, nobody had spike shoes. They just wore plimsolls or regular <laughs> shoes to, to run in. So that gave him a big advantage. So as a 15-year-old, your grandpa was able to run. He might not have been faster than people, but the shoes made him quicker because it gave him such an advantage. Well, indeed, yes. I mean, he uh, he was a cobbler by trade, so he had a good idea on how to make a pair of shoes. And uh, he thought that making putting spikes in and running on a cinder track, which in those days there was cinder, so you run on a cinder with just regular shoes, the cinders would slip away and you'd lose some traction. With spikes, well, he had an advantage. So instead of being halfway down the field, he, he was beginning to move up. In fact, he got to second. and that was like a big advantage, which his, uh, his fellow clubmates uh, took notice of. And did he do it just because he wanted to run faster, not that he wanted a shoe company or anything originally? I, I, I think that there was uh, two things. One, he has to run faster. The other was that uh, 
he saw this was a way forward. This was something new. Uh, this was not been done really as far as he was concerned. Uh, he learned his trade as a cobbler from his own grandfather. And his own grandfather, who lived about 60 miles away, he used to go and visit. His own grandfather was a cobbler. But as a cobbler, he used to repair cricket boots. And cricket boots, they had spikes in the bottom. And, of course, he would ask his grandfather, why do they have spikes in the bottom? Well, it gives you more traction. It gives you grip. Mm-hmm. You don't slip on, on, the, uh, on the grass when you're playing cricket. And I think that was probably a light bulb moment for my grandfather. He thought, well, why don't I do that in a pair of running shoes? Yeah. So from his point of view, that would give him an advantage. The other thing was it was novel. It was new. Why not? Possibly there's some business here. Do you think maybe? Oh, maybe. Yeah, it sounds exciting. It sounds new. So then the generation in between you, your father, he went into the shoe industry as well, right? Yeah. Well, if you think my grandfather started off really at the beginning of the 20th century, 19, by 1900, he, st- he made his own first shoes in 1895. By 1900, he had a business because all his uh, fellow athletes <laughs> and all the, uh, the athletes within a few miles of him, they wanted those spike running shoes. So by 2000, he set himself up as J.W. Foster. Um, and he was making uh, running shoes for local athletes and athletes throughout the UK. However, we had a war to intervene. World War II came along. So from 1914 to 1918, they were repairing army boots. Running oh, because everyone had to go. Oh, everyone had yeah. to assist with the war yeah. efforts. That's right. But by the time 1920 came along, they were back into making running shoes. And this was... This was um, my grandfather, Joe's, uh, this was his belly pop, the 20s. Fantastic uh, decade for him. In 1920 itself, in Antwerp, he was supplying the Olympic teams with, with running wow. shoes. In 24, it was 24 and 28, he had lots and lots of gold medals. But what stands out amongst those gold medals are three in particular. Uh, one was uh, Harold Abrams, another one, Eric Liddell, and the third one was Lord Burley. Now, they're the athletes who were actually immortalized in the film Chariots of Fire. So he made those shoes when they were actually breaking the records and earning the gold medals. Wow, that's iconic. That's awesome for uh, the brand and for just his experience and exposure. So you and your brother were growing up and you guys knew you were going to be in the shoe industry? Well... Yes, I think, um, you know, you grow up, I say we grew up through the Second World War. Um, but my grandfather died in 1933. He was only young. He was only 53 at the time, which is a shame. Uh, I never knew him because I was born in 1935. But I am to be born on his birthday, on the 18th of May. Um, so that's why I was called Joe as well. I, my grandmother said he brought his name with him. So I'm Joseph. So I, as as Joe, I grew up during the war. And by 1948, my brother Jeff, he joined the uh, J.W. Fosters, which was then J.W. Foster and Sons. The Sons, of course, had taken over, and my <laughs> father and uncle. Uh, he joined. I didn't join until 1952. I spent a little more time at college. Uh, however, by 1953, it was time to do national service. We still had it in those days in the UK where you did two years in the forces, um, I went in the RAF, Jeff went in the army, and he served his two years in Germany. And what did he see? Well, he saw Adidas and Puma and what they were doing with their shoes. 
and how they were progressing. They, they were becoming big names. So when we came back out of the uh, forces in, uh, in 1955, we were looking at a business, J.W. Foster Sons. It was a failing business. It, yeah. they, were, they were still stuck uh, in the 1940s, 1930s. They were still making the same shoes, which was fine, but things were moving on. And yeah. we tried to persuade them, you've got to move on. Yeah, but uh, for whatever reasons, father and uncle did not get on well together. In fact, by the time we had done our national service, they were really feuding hardly speaking to each other. So to try and get them to work together, to change the business, to make some plans, to start some marketing, to think about the future, just impossible. In fact, my father said to me, look, when we're gone, um, this business will be yours. And my only response to that was, I'm sorry, Dad, but by the time you are gone, this business will have gone way, way before (laughs) because it's it's dying now. So come on, let's, let's move on. However, we couldn't. There's nothing we could do to persuade them to do anything, which really left Jeff and myself with only one decision, and that is if we wanted a future uh, following grandfather's uh, example way yeah. back in 1995, we had to leave. So in 1958, we left and we set up our own small company just down the road in the next town. At 23 years old, right? 23 years old, and Jeff was 25 at that time, yes. But we we are 23 years old. So, you know, you're young, you're undestructible. You know, you can do anything. Yeah, whatever, we can do it. And we just spent two years doing national service, which meant you learned an awful lot of independence. Yeah, you just learn the independence. So we set our company up in Berry, which was just down the road, say six miles, Mercury Sports Footwear. (laughs) We thought that was a good name. We had uh, uh, the Winged Messenger as our logo. Uh, which yeah. was very good, and uh, it was fine for eighteen months. It was fine until our accountant, because we we were doing okay, we were doing nicely, thank you. And our accountant said, "You better register your name, Joe, but register Mercury because uh, if you don't register that, and other people see it's doing well, they'll copy you." Okay. Oh, okay. Okay, we well, don't copy you, so we've got to register it. So we uh, we applied to the registrar, and the registrar came back to say, "I'm sorry." Mercury is already pre-registered by British Shoe Corporation. So they'll sell it to you for a thousand pounds. Well, oh my God. In those days, you guys coming. Today, that's just back pocket money. But in those days, it's like me saying to you, well, you you, you can have a brand for a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, it's just absurd. Yeah. So that was a no no. But the uh, the patent agent I'd seen, he said, look, uh, what you need. Uh, is you've got to bring me about 10 names, he said, because putting these through the register, it you know, if you do it one by one, you might be here for a long time. So, yeah, let's yeah. 10 names, let's check 10 names through. And the guy, the patent agent, I was in his office at the time, and he pointed through the window and he pointed to a sign, Kodak. And I said, okay. well, Why Kodak? He said, he said, Because Kodak means nothing, it's an invented name, it's made up, it doesn't. It's not like Mercury. We all know what Mercury is. No, this is in, this is just an invented name. So bring me ten names. Oh, I think we went back and tried to think of one name. Never mind ten names. Yeah. However, we sat down there and we had lots of birds, lots of animals. But um, during that war, 1943, I was only eight at the time. I won a race, and the prize was a Webster's Dictionary, an American dictionary of all things. Pretty believe. 
I don't know why John Moore, it would be American Dictionary, but there, it's American Dictionary. And at the time, we are looking for names, and I thought, well, the letter R, I like that letter R. I'll just see what I can find in this dictionary. So I'm thumbing through the dictionary, and I come across Reebok, R-W-B-O-K, a yeah. small South African gazelle. Oh, gazelle, rung a bell. Oh, that sounds good. That sounds brilliant. Put this at the top of the list. So with all the others, this is the top of the list. I go back to see the patent agent. And I said, look, I know we've given you 10 here, but this is the one we want. We have got to be in love with this. This has got to be our passion because, you know, we've got to make it work. Yeah. And as it happened, it's the only one that came out that we could actually register. <laughs> but the registrar said, I can only put you in part B of the register. What, what's that? Why part B? Well, he said, if somebody comes to me and said, we're making shoes out of Reebok skin, I can't stop them. That, that, you know, we can't do anything about it. However, Jordan, 20 years later, he came back to us and said, we've now moved you from part B to part A. Thank God. <laughs> now, now everybody knows that Reebok is a shoe. Yeah. <laughs> what a story around the name. But, I mean, you got lucky. That I mean, part of it's luck, part of it's triumph. But it, I'm, it's crazy that it's stuck the entire time. A big part of life is luck. And yeah. a big part of our life. Yeah. We we've had our bad times. We've had some sad times. But you've got to look and you've got to recognize when your luck comes along. And uh, and luck has come along a few times because um we, we registered of course as Reebok in nineteen sixty. Um and it was only about three or four years after that that uh, Adidas came along because we had two stripes. They have three stripes. We had two stripes and a T bar. Yeah, uh, and then they said, "Look, your two stripes in your T-bar is an infringement of our three stripes." And like you know, either you got to uh, stop doing this, or we'll sue you. Yeah. So we were delighted. Can you can you think? Adidas, they've, they've seen us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're a small company, and Adidas now they're telling us, uh, "Look, we're infringing them." That's brilliant because they've noticed us. <clears throat> so we didn't. <clears throat> we didn't look at that as a, as a bad thing. We uh, looked around, got one or two ideas, and came up with the arrow, which uh, you see on the side of the shoe now, and we put a lateral stripe on as well. So that brought us, a, again, a different uh, uh, a different silhouette to our shoe. And, and that silhouette is something that uh, people now recognize, and oh, recognize for a long time, but, but it gave us a different recognition. So again, in many ways, while Stadidus didn't like us doing what we're doing, they did us a good turn. That was another piece of luck because we, we then uh, we then ended up with a silhouette which was much more original than the two stripes we had. Yeah. See, and that that's amazing. I love that perspective where you go, the big guy finally, they're trying to sue us by a big company, and you're like, no, they noticed us. We're big. <laughs> We're getting bigger. This is exciting. Yeah, I love that perspective. Well, I, I think you know, um, one of the things in life that you have to have is the optimism and, and the view that uh, the you know most things that could be a problem and seem to be a problem when it hits you uh, yeah. could actually be uh, be a bit more luck, a step yeah. forward, and you're going to see what you can do out of and anything that comes along. Can you turn it around and can yeah. that turn that around to your advantage? So. Yeah. That, that gave us a nice advantage. But uh, the the problem was that Adidas um, had really taken over 
as the people supplying soccer. They were big in, in football, soccer. And yeah. for us to make a name in soccer would be difficult. Yeah. Uh, grandfather had been supplying a lot of the, uh, the British soccer teams with training shoes and football boots. But by the time we come along, um, Adidas had taken that. And so we had to concentrate on, on what we thought we could uh, make a name in, and that was in athletics. Yeah. How came the next piece of luck? The next piece of luck was in America. Running became big, yeah. real big. And, and it became a category that was outstripping oh, um, most other sports itself in America. In those days, soccer didn't even apply in America. It yeah. was a small, <laughs> no one was playing soccer in the, in the 50s and 60s. It's, it's, it's a new phenomenon that, that's really sort of come along. But the first time I went to the uh, States was in 1968. In 68, okay. our board of, our government, in fact, uh, invited people from the sports trade to participate in the NSGA show, National Sporting Goods Association, yeah. America show in Chicago. Uh, and they said, look, we'll, buy, we'll pay for the stand, we'll pay for your return air frights, and we'll pay half of your hotel bill. Well, okay. uh, you know. With that sort of offer, you can't refuse, can you, really? <laughs> got to go to America. <laughs> yeah, you got to go. And, you know, what an adventure. Yeah. A trip Absolutely. To Why not? Yeah. And uh, so I went with a friend who, uh, who had an outdoor camping shop, and he came along with uh, – he, he had a, a climbing boot, a rock climbing boot, which we had actually we, – we were making the climbing boot at the time. Which okay. The lightweight boots we were making that. And we, we went to the NSGA and got to the show – People loved our shoes. Yeah, where do I get your shoes from? Well, I get them from England. England? Well, New England? No, 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 New England. No, no, no. We, we talk about across the pond, across the Atlantic, England, you know, England and Europe. Oh, right. Mm. Well, look, when you, when you get somebody over here who's stuck in the shoes, we'll take them because they're really good. However, Bob, who was the outdoors man in that boot, he did get a few boots. He got quite a few orders for that. And I think the reason is that the outdoor uh, <clears throat> business were used to importing from Europe yeah. skis and things like that, ski Absolutely. boots. You know, I think that was something they were they were used to doing. But athletic shoes, running shoes, no, they they yeah. didn't uh, they That's didn't what... do that. <clears throat> so it took me until 1979. That's 11 years. Of keep going, keep knocking on the door. Hello, hello, America. I'm coming. I'm here. And the reason it took that time is we needed to find a key. You know, I, people will buy your shoe if they need to buy your shoe. If they don't, they won't make the effort. It's okay if it's not. So we needed a key. And the key came through Runner's World. Okay. Runner's World was the running magazine that had really started the craze and really was the Bible. Everybody looked at Runner's World. Everybody looked at the shoes in Runner's World. And Runner's World rated those shoes. At first, they were rating them number one, two, three, four, five. And number one, all of a sudden, when they actually, it was, I think it was the August edition, was the shoe edition. When they, uh, when they came out with that, everybody wanted a number one shoe. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, whoever that was, maybe Nike, maybe New Balance Brooks, whoever was number one at the time, had no chance. Of fulfilling all all the requirements, uh, the, the numbers yeah. that everybody wanted their shoe. <clears throat> so it, it took a couple of years, but uh, with a bit of pressure on Bob Anderson, who uh, was the publisher of Runner's World, <clears throat> he sort of gave way and 
he decided he would do five stars or star ratings. Five star was the best one, working out four, three, two, and one, yeah. whatever it was. And so the key for me was to get a five star. Yeah. And in 1978, we had I designed a shoe, uh, Aztec, which yeah. we uh, we launched for the uh, uh, it was the Commonwealth Games in Edmonton, and we got quite a few goals. We had a good time with that. So by January of uh, 1979, NSGA show again in February in Chicago. Uh, we had the show. We had the shoe there on into the show. Lots of good uh, comments. Yeah, like that shoe. Uh, came out, came out, wanted 25,000 pairs. Well, mm, yes, okay. But uh, Paul Feynman came along and, and we, we, we sort of hit it off right from day one. Yeah. He, he was a good guy and reasonable and he said, Joe, I'd like to... Uh, yeah, sell your shoes. But we need a five-star shoe. We need something that we can yeah. sell. <clears throat> and I said, Paul, I think we've got a five-star shoe, but we got to wait until uh, August when the really? shoe's waiting to come out. Yeah. And it was uh, early on, I, I don't know what day, but I think it probably comes out just before August. And uh, we knew the day was coming out, and I rang Paul. I said, Paul, can you nip down to the kiosk and just... Uh, buy the runner's world and let's see where we are with this. Uh, an hour later, he came back. Joe, we got five stars. <laughs> oh, brilliant. We were, we were on the move. That started one of those days that uh, uh, you, you only dream of. Yeah. And, and he also said, but your other two shoes got five stars as well. And that was a track um, spike and a racing shoe. So <clears throat> that was the key. And Paul Feynman was the door. We now had access to the USA market, which was the big market. So at I this point, say. so at this point, you have three five-star shoes, which gives you the authority. And then Paul is the who where does Paul? He's the salesman or he's the financer? No, Paul was uh, Paul with his uh, his his brother and his brother-in-law, they were running a small distribution company called Boston Camping. Okay. And Boston Camping, I thought, well, fair enough. He's got distribution in the USA, the bolt on the Reebok product, and uh, yeah. we've got distribution. Um, but, however, when I went back next time to see Paul, they just dissolved the uh, camping company, and Paul, on his own, he would be the distributor. So he set up the uh, Reebok distribution for USA. Oh, wow. So yeah. he, it was a partnership that came in. They had the distribution. Let's set this up. We'll make the shoes here. Well, he he got a license. We gave him the license to do yeah. the uh, distribution. Yeah. The problem now is, of course, that we're a smallish company still. If we'd have taken Kmart on twenty five thousand pairs, that would have taken us six months to produce. Oh wow. However, yeah. However, I mean, we knew this. We we knew that if we we're going to hit the American market. We needed to get some volume, so we needed assistance. And I'd already been talking to Barter, who probably the biggest shoe company in the world, if you uh, take all the manufacturing. They had a place in the UK, down near London, and they were willing to make some shoes for me. But uh, I'd also been talking to an agent of uh, some South Korean production people, yeah. because Kmart said, yes, they take 25,000 pairs, but they needed them at a better price, a much better price than we could produce in the UK. Yeah. Um, and when we talked to the people in South Korea, yes, we could get it there for less than half the price of uh, have your in the yeah. UK. 
So we now had two things to do. We had to get production, and we had to also look at getting cheaper production, which was fine. However, my biggest problem happened when Jeff, my brother, at that point, he got, got ill, he got sick, and he died. So we sorry. Well, oh. I mean, it was the saddest day at that time. Yeah. It was terrible. But again, it wasn't a question that you can just sit down there and just forget it. No, it probably spurred me on more. Really? Though we made this a success. Yeah. And uh, I had to bring people in to run the factory. And then Jeff would have actually taken on the job of going to Barter to get Barter to make the shoes the way he would make them in the factory. Yeah. He, he, he concentrated on working in the factory. I was concentrating on sales, marketing, yeah. uh, advancing the company. He would have done that. Well, I had to do that instead of him. He would have also gone to Korea to set things up out there. But yeah. I, had taken, I had taken a trip to Korea in 1979 in November and seen the product. The product was great. Uh, in the book, it's an adventure that going out yeah. to <laughs> to Korea because I had a special ticket. It was around the world in eighty days or less. Yeah, first class standby, and it was a Pan Am ticket. Pan Am had two planes. One went east and one went west around the globe all the time. Just kept going around the globe, either east or west. And one hour until it was east. But that's a good story. It is it's part of the story in the book. It's. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened then is that, okay, the South Koreans, the production, there would be some time before we could start on that because they, they needed at least, I think it was 250 pairs a day yeah. to go through just one production line. Yeah. And before that happened, we got barter going. So barter would be a little more expensive. Um, and we got 20,000 pairs to satisfy the demand that Paul Feynman was then receiving. Yeah. Oh, the unfortunate problem is, though, that uh, we've been using a, a new uh, cushion material for the sole, which was EVA. Yeah. And Barter, big company, they had their own rubber factory as well. And oh, so they, they, put the, they put the EVA, they started putting the EVA through the rubber factory. Unfortunately, being so new, they hadn't checked out the curing times or yeah. something. And these shoes, when Paul got them, they started coming back, the midsole were collapsing oh no uh not all of them but the bottom line to this is he never paid for the twenty thousand pairs of shoes he got which <laughs> helped him which helped him get through the period until the south korean production came up yeah uh, now here is another problem because once south korea comes on there's no there's no credit line from south korea you got a credit line from barter that's okay so we could uh you could afford it up to now yeah but there's no credit line in South Korea. You've got to put your money up or you've got to get a letter of credit, which means your bank has got to put the money up. Yeah. So, and so it was a test now. How do we, uh, how do we finance this? So yeah. we, we talked about, you know, was Paul the financer? His money soon went. But he, he, was, he was 100% behind this. And uh, um, by good fortune, I mean, we met one or two people uh, to try and finance the company. One one of the companies, in fact, had turned down Nike when Nike was looking for finance. Really? And his response was, well, I don't want to be the guy that backed the wrong company. <laughs> well, he didn't. He didn't back either company. Yeah. Along came Stephen Rubin. Stephen Rubin is uh, Pentland. They're a British company. 
uh, a good-sized British company. But Stephen Rubin had a, a, a number of uh, companies. In fact, he's called Mr. Sneaker now because he, he owns a lot of things. But uh, in those days, he had a company in Hong Kong, in the Far yeah. East, called ASCO, a show, associated shoe company. Yeah. And they were actually doing the sourcing out yeah. there in Korea. That was their job. They did sourcing. And they sold to major retailers at a better price than yeah. anybody from the UK could do it. So he came along and uh, he took a piece of the company. But the main thing that he did is he gave Paul a credit line. Yeah. So once Paul had that credit line, it meant he could order the shoes. He didn't have to pay. He could start Brilliant. to deliver, deliver against those masses of orders that were coming in. So that was, that was again, finding the right person, having the luck. In fact, I've just sent Stephen a book. Yeah. <laughs> only, only today we posted it off to Stephen. He's, <laughs> he's anxious to see what I've written about it, I think. <laughs> so, uh, but along came Stephen, and that really gave the finance that Paul needed now to do the American market. Yeah. That would that have been my goal. Get the American market. If we get that, that's the biggest influence globally for the product. I knew yeah. that once we got that market, we had globally we were going to be big. Yeah. However, we uh, we even had a bigger stroke of luck because whilst this was going very nicely, <clears throat> we had a, a guy down in uh, in Los Angeles who was a tech rep. He was a Reebok tech rep and yeah. uh, a runner. He himself was quite good at that, but he was also yeah. a salesman. And uh, he uh, he was down there, and his wife Frankie. My Frankie was going to these aerobic classes with her girlfriends. Yeah. And they were all coming back, oh, full of this, brilliant, oh, wonderful. Oh. And so I said to them, what, what is this aerobic? And they said, well, it's, it's exercising to music. And, of course, it's like dancing. It's like, <laughs> so I thought, I want a piece of this. <laughs> and he went down there uh, to see what was happening. And the instructor was there. She she wore probably a pair of running shoes, and half the yeah. class were either plimsolls or running shoes. The other half had nothing. Yeah. For Arthur, this was a, another light bulb moment. Another key was happening here. It yeah. was why don't we produce these girls a shoe which fits like a glove, very comfortable. Yeah. So for this, especially for aerobics. What year is this? Uh, we're talking about 1982. Okay. 82, and then. I mean, that was the birth of the freestyle. And yeah. it was the freestyle that all of a sudden, uh, and it took quite a while for it to sort of grow and grow out of LA and become more national, but it grew rapidly. And uh, what it was is that Reebok, whilst uh, we were becoming known as a running shoe, we were not like Adidas, not like uh, Nike. Yeah. We were male, sweaty, we were female. This, all of a sudden, Reebok was owned by women, and yeah. women owned Reebok. Yeah. And those shoes, you know, the sales, they went from, I think it's about 9 million, 30 million, 90 million, 300 million to 900 million. Massive sales wow. in, success, in successive years. Yeah. And this, this was absolutely taken us apart. Fantastic. So the financing had stopped being a problem. Now the problem was getting the product. Yeah. How do you, where do you find a product to meet that sort of number? And again, this is where your luck comes in. Both Adidas and Nike had hit a bit of a wall. They were both finding things a bit difficult. Uh, 
I think the running market had slowed a bit. So uh, so Nike had to pull out of two or three uh, of, of the factories in South Korea, <clears throat> which meant there was a, a gap. We could move in. Yeah. So once they moved out, we moved in, and that's the only way we could have ever met those numbers. Because oh, wow. Fantastic. Wow. So, so could because there's not that many factories and all the factories are getting taken up. Well, you don't, you can't grow it. You can't build a factory that quickly. You yeah. can't train, train, train people that quickly. It's, it's just a matter of that. You know, you have to have space and yeah. that's how space arrived. Um, but of course, this all started in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. And very soon, Jane Fonda was doing her videos wearing Reebok. You know, oh, wow. this, is what, this is what caused the, the big explosion. Sybil Shepherd, uh, yeah. she was wearing uh, orange high tops to pick up her Emmy Awards. And, and at this time, at this time, were you paying them, or they just chose no, to do that no. for the fashion statement? This, 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 they were doing this because they loved the idea of wearing these shoes. You didn't have to pay them; give them a few pairs of shoes, and they were happy, happy, happy. I think that's a bit different now. <laughs> yeah, very <laughs> different. Yeah, I think it's a bit different. I think, <laughs> I think you have to buy a way in now. You have to. Your influence is well paid these days. Yeah. But, these influencers were just just a notoriety. They were such uh, stars. And then we, um, a guy called Wendell Niles, he was an empresario out of uh, the Hollywood area, and he knew all the stars. Uh, he, Frank, oh, really? uh, everybody down there. And uh, he got us involved in Monte Carlo. Okay. In, uh, in the, um, it was the Princess Grace Foundation that we had a, a pro-celebrity tennis tournament. And of course, nobody turned down an invite. So yeah. we had every star you can imagine coming along there: uh, Sean Connery, uh, Roger Moore, um, John Forsyth. And John Forsyth is a nice guy, really nice guy. He turned up at any of the events that we were putting on. Uh, he was a super guy. So this this sort of just took the uh, took the Reebok brand into stardom. It just yeah. we we became uh, on the on the feet of everybody, and everybody wore them. They wanted to wear them wear them on the street and this is i think i think we, we were something like we were 80 percent of all americans at that time bought themselves a pair of reebok oh wow wow so we that is it. influential yeah, yeah. And by uh, by late late 80s uh we became number one we overtook adidas we overtook uh uh nike yeah uh, and we became the number one sports brand globally which is great and by well, the end of 1989, I retired. Oh, I decided, really? Yeah. Well, you know, by that time, the company had got so big. Yeah. Lots and lots of, because you, you need you need to grow. I mean, you can't, yeah, of course. you can't get to those volumes without having a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people. So as it got very big, um, I, was, uh, I was approaching 55, and I decided that, you know, this, this is a young man's game. Yeah. And it's also a numbers game. They were different, and numbers were not my game. I was I was more into the uh, to the marketing, to the to the yeah. growth of the brand. You know, that was more what I was into. So yeah. I decided time for me to go. And what the one thing I because I I knew that you took it from this small shop in London, and you made it this like you said the number one global brand. How was managing that transition? Because you have to have completely different skills. Well, you, you do. Uh, I, I, 
once we got Paul Fireman on board in in, uh, in the United States, and Paul and I, we had a, a good agreement. He would look after America because I knew okay. better he did in America. That w- that would drive the rest of the world, and I would look after the rest of the world. I would put on, I would globally put on all these different uh, distributions around the world, which was not a difficult job to do, providing Paul did a good job. Yeah, <laughs> Paul did a fantastic job. Uh, so I, I was traveling the world, uh, building the distribution, and by the time I retired, the distribution for globally, apart from America, had gone over the billion dollar mark. Oh so wow. We had a big distribution, and uh, yeah. uh, and and at that time, it, I think it was decided that really we we were doing this in the UK. We were doing globally in the UK, and yeah. America was on its own. Yeah. It was decided that uh, everything would go try and put it under one roof in America. Yeah. So really, the, the need for globally to be done w- was beginning to end. Yeah, and it, and I didn't want to go and spend time. Just sitting on an airplane, which it had become that way. I was I was flying probably two or three times a month globally. I was just going around. It was just becoming tedious yeah. and exhausting. And when you arrive, you arrive at your uh, the airport. They pick you up in a limousine. You go down to the best hotel. You you sit and you have meals. You talk, and then you get another plane. So yeah. you know the thrill, the uh, the energy it needs to develop the brand and to, to grow the brand. Now it, it had moved into something else. And it moved into a, a big machine, which was almost automatic. So it didn't really need. Uh, it, it was not then as entertaining. It was fantastic that we became number one. And once you've achieved some goals, you know, you got to say, well, where do you go from there? You know, we'd achieve the goal, become a number one. Probably more than my dreams had been when we set off. Just Jeff and myself, two people making a few pair of shoes, and. 30 years later, you're number one brand uh, globally. That's incredible. Yeah. Where do you go from there? You retire and spend some time sitting on a beach. Well, almost. <laughs> so I was going to actually ask, how was that transition? Because it seems like you are not a – you are an empowering of people. You empower the people that you hire to go and just – do them like you're not micromanaging them at all so how is that transition for you well it's uh, it, it's difficult and it's easy it's like you know you all of a sudden you think wow it'd be good not to be at thirty-five thousand feet two or three times a month yeah you know, good and yet when you do stop it it's like where's the next ticket how is it i'm not flying anymore you know it's like it's been a drug it's, it's inside you your, your dna has changed it's now yeah. why am i not doing this and so <clears throat> I mean, I was seeing everybody regularly because I went to all the NSGAs and all the ISPO. ISPO is the U- the European equivalent of what is of what NSGA. So you knew everyone. Yeah, you're but the shoe guy. We were just going to the instead of having a hands-on day today, I was able to now just go around to the exhibitions, meet all the people, <clears throat> and uh, spend some time with them uh, and enjoy that part of it instead of being um, a physical part instead of a physical control. So for many years, it was nice to taper off, spend some time away from it, and just enjoy. And yeah, I, I still like travel. We we still travel. That's you know, well, normally, normally, um, we would be in in Europe right now. Probably right now, we're talking about October. Um, 
probably in Cannes or something like that in the south of France okay. and uh, yeah. enjoying people down there. But we used to go through, drive through Germany, Switzerland, France, Italy and meet all the people and spend some time talking to our distribution that used to be the, yeah. the distribution I put on and just spend some time in Italy at, uh, in Varese at the top of Sacramonte, just sitting there looking over the lakes and enjoying a nice glass of Italian wine. Absolutely. There's nothing better than that. So it's not too difficult to retire, is it? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. When you got what you need, you know what I mean? So how how long have you been working on the book? And what's the book? What's the book? Well, the book is really um, a lot about me rather yeah. than about Reebok. It is Reebok, but it's okay. how I uh, developed and went through Reebok, what it did for me. Um, and uh, it's not just simply how many shoes Reebok could make or the different things Reebok did. Now, I think you find it very, it, well, most people find it very interesting because it's more of a human story than a, a business story. And I started uh, writing this about seven years ago. The reason I started writing is that I, I read in the press, I read in Wikipedia, I read in sports magazines about people telling me how Reebok started. And it's wrong. It's so wrong. Yeah. So many people keep saying, well, you know, there's J.D. Foster sons and the, uh, the grandsons. They had a bright idea and changed the name. Well, we didn't change the name. Yeah. yeah. We had to leave and we had to set up our own, uh, our own company. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, the family, the family, family tradition, which is the DNA I have, of course, dates back to 1895 and just probably beyond that to my grandfather. So we, we share that family D DNA, but not the company name. Yeah. And uh, so it, it just needed, uh, the story just needed putting straight. And uh, I hope this is what it does. That it, uh, it puts the story straight and instead of people guessing as to what happened. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then the best thing about a book when it comes out is that generations and generations and generations, everyone knows it. Well, it was, it's, it's out on October 1st. It's now available in America in, through Amazon. It is okay. now available in the USA. Um, but if anybody, anybody wants one signed or dedicated because of COVID and lack of travel, yeah. they, they, they can come onto uh, uh, my website, which is the jwfosterheritage.com. Go onto the, onto the website and they can buy a, per, they can buy a book. Buy more than a book, <laughs> and and I will sign them. So, okay. uh, so we've already sent lots and lots and lots over to America, and around the world. And okay. uh, I think we're about six hundred books now signed. Oh wow! So if people want a signed book, they go to jwheritage.com. I'll drop that in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. JW, JW Foster, Foster Heritage, yes. JW Foster okay. Heritage, and I'll drop that in the show notes too. Okay, yeah. so everyone can grab that. Because mm -hmm. who doesn't want a signed copy? It's so unique and cool. Well, we can arrange for your type of companies. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Even address. <laughs> I can't wait. So a couple more questions. When did you feel, because there's so many people listening right now that are like, until I get here, I'm going to make it. And I feel like I'm accomplished. When did you feel like you guys made it with Reebok? Was there ever a feeling? Or was I, it always I, more and more and more? Um, well, it, it, it's almost step by step. Sometimes they're very small steps. But yeah. I think I think that uh, 
when when we got the five stars for Aztec, that yeah. that that was the key. That that opened the market. Yeah. Once I, once we we'd opened the market of the USA, that I knew we made it. That's what yeah. I needed. So that was the first one. And of course, achieving uh, achieving number one uh, sports brand globally, that was a fantastic thing. But I mean, by then you've made it. If if you're talking about when when do you know? Look, there are lots of entrepreneurs, and yeah. lots of people have brilliant ideas, and lots of them will never make it. But that should not deter you from trying, because so many people will say, "No, you can't do that. You can't do that." If you talk to people, you know, you don't have a plan from day one that takes you to become globally number one. Yeah. You don't have that plan. <laughs> Your plan is really how do we get the next step, and then the next step. So you take the plans, and if somebody said, "Well, you know, those those plans are..." Oh, the the too much dreams. It's too much Im- imagination. Don't worry. Keep on. You've got to do it. If you can, if you can dream it, you can make it. And, I love that. And this is from the founder of Reebok. He's saying, if you can dream it, you can make it. Which that should inspire everyone to go after their dreams. I love hopefully. that, Joe. Yes, hopefully. I love that, Joe. And yeah. now my last question is. What do you think the major distinction is between those who do make it and don't make it? Is it just that they try? I think I think what you've got to do, of course, to, to make it big, usually it means you're going to have a big company. Yeah. Which means you've got to have a big team. And uh, if you're going to make it, you've got to be you've got to be able to build that team, and and you've got to be able to step back piece by piece, to allow that team to run the company. Yeah. Because you can't do it yourself. Yeah. And the less, the less you yourself have to do, <laughs> at the end, you should have nothing to do. Yeah. You should have a good team. And let them come to you. But, you know, you don't want them to come to you. You must tell them, don't come to me with a problem. Yeah. Come to me with the answer. Yeah. And if you have a problem with maybe two answers, we'll discuss it. Yeah, we'll figure the best one. But you know, you're not there to answer everybody's problems. That's not what you're there for. You take a team on because they can do it better than you. If yeah. you can do it better than them, then you do it. Yeah. But you, you need people who can do it better than you. And uh, I had a number of people, and they're still good friends, who really can do things better than I can do things. Yeah. Possibly, possibly the best thing I could do was to help bring them together as a team. I love that. It's the connector. So we need to have a strong team if you want to make it big. I love it. Yes. Joe, you're awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Why don't you send me your address and we'll get you a book? Absolutely. Absolutely, Joe. I appreciate that. You can do that with with Julie. You've got all the... Absolutely. We'll do. Okay. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, we'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, we'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in.